0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe.
1: (laughs) I'm Brenna. Are you trying to upstage me?
0: Of course. (laughs) And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805.
1: And on the Tecumloops tase territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sweetmac Ulu. And today's text, Brown Girl Dreaming, is set partially in Greenville, South Carolina, which is the traditional home of the Eastern Cherokee people, and partially in Brooklyn. Again, we're back in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. home of the Munsee Lenape and Canarese people.
0: Correct, yeah. Yeah.
1: What did you think, Joe? Okay,
0: so folks, welcome to our second installment of Book Club. (laughs) I have to say, Brenna, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought that you selected this so that it partnered very well with our first Book Club entry on the House on Mango Street.
1: I was hoping you would notice that. Yeah, so this, uh, this month's pick was Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. I wanted to celebrate Jacqueline Woodson because she's had a really amazing year. She was named a MacArthur Genius this year.
0: Oh, that little thing?
1: Yeah, <laughs> among other major awards that she has won. Um, and this book, of course, won the National Book Award for Young People, the Coretta Scott King Book Award, and the NAACP Image Award. So it's a it's a well-lauded book. But yeah, I think it pairs really nice with The House on Mango Street. And then, of course, by extension with The Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which we read a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: The two books in particular, like, obviously, we talked a lot about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and the kind of nostalgic historical tale that it's telling. But Mm. there's something timeless that I found particularly about House on Mango Street and Brown Girl Dreaming.
1: I think what I really liked about this book is that it both manages to evoke a kind of nostalgic timelessness, as you say, but is also really clear-eyed about the historical struggles that were going on at the same time. And I think that Uh, House on Mango Street does that too. It's interesting to see how much less the politics of tree growers in Brooklyn enter into the protagonist's life. Like we know about them because the book itself is really interested in the vignettes and the society and and setting up that context. But Mm -hmm. the ways in which sort of the racialized bodies in both Brown Girl Dreaming and House on Mango Street make that politics like a visceral experience – I really appreciate it. Like, I found that really immediate and interesting.
0: Yeah, it's very much a fascinating read, if only because as a white reader, there's something to be said about being able to not have to acknowledge it when you're Mm -hmm. reading something like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say it's confronting, because I think there's a negative connotation to the word, but it's unavoidable when you're reading these other two texts. And... That really speaks to me as a white reader, because it's so far outside of my lived experience. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate being made to acknowledge the world is harder when you are not white. Like, it seems like a very obvious statement. But there's something so powerful in the way that these two texts capture that.
1: Yeah, and I think there's something about particularly this book, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to word this,
0: Joe. It's I know, like, I know.
1: It's such a pleasurable read. Like yes. you would think that a book that is so interested in showing these vignettes of a very tumultuous period of American mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. you would think it would be, I don't know, less pleasurable, I guess. We tend to oh, think of those yeah. books as being sort of like more serious. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: so this is an autobiographical story. This is Woodson's childhood. yes. And there's something about the way she manages to balance the complexity and the political and the the very real struggle that the people around her are experiencing, that she or herself is experiencing, mm-hmm. but alongside the sweetness of childhood. And I found it to be an incredibly humanizing way of looking at the civil rights struggle in the US.
0: Yeah, I wonder if you would agree with this. Is it something to do with the fact that it's through a quote-unquote child's eyes? Mm,
1: Yeah, but a child who is very precocious, right? Not in an unbelievable way, but like she's simultaneously very aware of the kinds of limitations that are placed on her because of her race. Because her parents make sure that she knows enough to be safe,
0: right? Yeah, she's a politically minded child.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, it is her childhood. And I think it's Mm -hmm. nice to remember that children are children. We have a really difficult time particularly recognizing childhood and innocence in Black bodies in North America. We tend to force Black children to grow up very quickly. And so there's something really beautiful about the way Woodson insistently evokes childhood and childishness for her Mm -hmm. characters and protagonists that I found incredibly powerful.
0: There were a couple of times where I actually had to stop and remind myself that this was an autobiography because Mm. it feels like such a perfect balance between the kind of nostalgia and like these perfect moments and so much joy Mm. mixed with The trauma, like it reads like a fictional narrative because it is so well balanced. You would have thought that the way it's written could only be captured in fiction.
1: It's a book that is in many ways confronting to white readers in particular because it is so insistent about the possibilities for Black joy, Mm -hmm. regardless of circumstances. Like I think some of my favorite scenes are after the family moves to Brooklyn, They move into what is ultimately a tenement house, but everyone in the tenement house is also from Greenville, South Carolina. Yeah,
0: I love that. (laughs) There's like
1: everyone is, you know, cooking the familiar foods and listening to the familiar music and telling the familiar stories about the familiar people. And it's so just glorious and joyful. And at the same time, you're like, yeah, this is like a tenement in Brooklyn. This is a really tenuous situation. Like Mm -hmm. the kids are left alone a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. But there is so much beauty in it. And I think, I mean, that's something that Woodson is often lauded for. She writes a lot of these kinds of not everything she writes is in verse, but much of it is. And in these stories, you have this sort of focus on happiness in the face of. Real hardship. I, I don't know if you remember, Joe, but a few weeks ago for my homework, I've talked about two other Jacqueline Woodson books, uh, Harbor Me and Before the Ever After, both of which are written in verse. Okay. Both of which are more middle grade. But Harbor Me was the one I was telling you about that takes place in a, in a classroom from the perspective of the children. And one of the kids is undocumented, and his parents are taken by ICE. And it's the sort of classroom kind of coming together in reaction and response to that. Right. And then the other one I read recently was Before the Ever After, which is again from the perspective of a middle grade age child, again in verse, but this one is about the kid's dad is a like an NFL player who has the brain trauma that comes from being an NFL player. Right. And it's <laughs> it's about the child like negotiating the change in his father. Mm. And like both of these are incredibly obviously serious, like grim topics.
0: Very dark, yeah.
1: And yet what Woodson is able to do, and I think part of it is the way she uses poetry, like all of her writing is really image dependent. Mm -hmm. But also the fact that from a child's perspective, you know, we lose track sometimes of the fact that children find their childhood in all kinds of different circumstances, right? And that that capacity for joy, I think, is really important in her writing. And it's really something that I loved in this book. Again, because like, this is a migration story. It's a story that's really common, particularly to the Black experience, particularly in America, right? This like this northward migration. Mm-hmm. It's a history that is fraught with so much trauma. And Woodson reminds us that these are like actual individual human beings, right? That it's not just a collective experience, but an individual one as well.
0: Hmm. I quite liked how it felt like such a big story, and yet an intimate story about just the selected, you know, multi-generational families.
1: Yes, like the scope is actually pretty epic, right? It starts in Columbus, Ohio, it goes to Greenville, South Carolina, it ends up in Brooklyn. We have, yeah, as you say, multiple generations of the family. The children are so well-traveled because they have to negotiate this, but also the very different world that exists in the North and the South in Mm -hmm. the 60s and 70s right and the ways in which the children have to negotiate their identities differently like they're Mm -hmm. used to being treated very differently in ohio than when they moved to greenville and then it's another change again in brooklyn and the way society perceives them and this overarching sense that like they're responsible for how society perceives them in that they have to respond to how (laughs) society perceives them like for Mm self-preservation but that they have identities that are their own i think it ultimately reveals like the capricious nature with which american society views blackness just based on like where you are right and like Mm -hmm. how different your experience of the world is based on sort of accidents of geography i think it's really powerful (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, I I completely agree. I'm just worried that maybe we've gone too long without telling people what the book is about in case they have not joined us for book club yeah, in reading along.
1: Okay, so I've already talked about the geographical scope. I won't go through that. But basically, yes. it's, it's the story of Jacqueline. And she is named after her dad, but her dad and mom effectively split up Mm -hmm. It takes them a few years to actually do it, right? But her dad is really committed to kind of a life of socially elevated blackness in the North. And her Mm -hmm. mother is committed to her family in the South. And like, ultimately, that's a divide that they can't cross because her father won't live what he sees as like a deferential life in Mm -hmm. South Carolina and her mother won't leave her family. And right. so that tension is set up right from the beginning, right? That, like,
0: the North versus the South, and yeah. what it is that we expect. Like, basically, how are Black bodies meant to travel through the world, and what responsibility do they have to other Black people, mm-hmm. and what responsibility do they have to themselves and their individual families?
1: So right from the beginning of the text, these children are constantly aware of this tension, right? Because Mm -hmm. they are constantly taking this bus trip that I found very tense (laughs) every time they get on the bus to go from Ohio to South Carolina or vice versa. I found that really tense because of this explicit racism that could cause them bodily harm as soon as they cross this effectively Mm -hmm. made up geographic border, right? Yeah. But the children love South Carolina. They love their family. They love being there. The older children miss their father, but Jacqueline didn't really know him that well, right? No. But over time, it becomes clear that her mother wants to be treated better than she has access to in South Carolina. And Mm -hmm. so she migrates first to Brooklyn and works and also gets pregnant.
0: Okay, so... (laughs) Part of what people need to understand is that, yes, this is presented through a child's perspective, but also there's just like interesting gaps in the narrative. You know why the parents break up, but you also don't know exactly what happened. It's just that one day they're now living in South Carolina. Yeah. And there's this moment where then her mom goes to Brooklyn and then she comes back to collect them. They know she's coming and she shows up and she's like, okay, you're also going to have, another sibling yes and there's never any detail about no. how this pregnancy came about no. and i find it fascinating
1: yeah we just never know <laughs> no we never know who the father is we know that The youngest brother who comes along is quite a bit lighter skinned than his Mm -hmm. siblings. And and there's a lot of discussion of that sort of in the context of their life in Brooklyn. But eventually, uh, when the baby is about to be born, basically, she sends for the children or she goes and retrieves the children from South Carolina and they Mm -hmm. move to Brooklyn. Although they spend a lot of time going back and forth and spending time summers with their grandparents.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so this is very much a story about sort of bodies in motion and migration and family The new baby, Roman, gets into some health difficulties because he's been eating paint, which, uh, as we know, is lead, (laughs) right? (laughs) But one of those stories that's really interesting to read from adult and historical eyes. Yes. It must have been so terrifying at the time. But so there are these, like, family traumas that come about. Jacqueline... Her sister excels in school. She doesn't. She struggles with reading and writing, but she desperately wants to be a writer, right? It is Jacqueline Woodson's story.
0: Mm -hmm. But she also clearly has dyslexia and no one diagnoses it.
1: No, because it's like (laughs) 1970 in a tenement in Brooklyn, right? But what we do see is like this racial politics awakening for Jackie she gets this best friend Maria who is from Puerto Rico and they like have this deep bond and they like discover Angela Davis and they learn about Mm -hmm.
0: the Black Panthers even though they don't even know what they're doing half the time so (laughs) funny
1: (laughs) um And, you know, eventually their worlds kind of collapse. They stop going back to South Carolina because after the death of their grandfather, their grandmother moves to Brooklyn. And it it really is sort of, um, in many ways, a really simple, quiet story about a little girl discovering a desire to tell stories and also to find her own politics. But it's Mm -hmm. set in this incredibly tumultuous political moment.
0: Yeah, but it never feels that way. No. So much of this feels like a coming of age story with some really amusing anecdotes and vignettes.
1: Mhm. Mhm. I agree. I don't want to say it doesn't seem political as like a compliment because don't really I don't really, <laughs> I don't really mm-hmm. think that's like necessarily a compliment, but I just think it's a tribute to Woodson's writing that this feels like such an authentic story of childhood from the perspective of a child, right? Like she's yes. just really good at, you know, like, yeah, as they discover Angela Davis, and they discover like her political statements, and they don't really understand it. But they also, you know, on a visceral level do but understand do. it, yeah. right?
0: Absolutely.
1: And she manages to evoke that so well. To me, I think it's something about the fact that it's in verse that the gaps makes sense because there are so often gaps in poetry, right? And you make your own meaning out of poetry. And so I think that's a particularly powerful aspect of what's going on here.
0: Hmm. I just liked the elegance of how mm. some of the vignettes speak to much larger issues. Like there's a repeated refrain from Jackie's mom that her uncle, mm. her mom's younger brother, is up to questionable activities Mm -hmm. that could get him into trouble and at one point he goes to jail for a couple of years and it's a very brief passage in the book but you immediately understand how that event changes him and changes the family dynamic and the relationships and it's just so yeah, like elegant is the Mm -hmm. word that I feel because you're reading it. And this book is a breeze. I read it in three or four days. Mm -hmm. But I still got so much out of it. And it goes down smooth because of the verse, but that doesn't make it less political or less powerful.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. So this is my second time reading it. And I totally forgot it was like over 300 pages, (laughs) because I Mm -hmm. remembered it being such a breezy read.
0: Yeah, it feels about the same length as Mango Street.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really does. And I think like Mango Street, it doesn't get bogged down in plot. It's really interested in sort of telling, as you say, vignettes, giving these little moments, and then asking you as the reader to make sense of the picture as a whole, Mm -hmm. without doing that work for you. And I think that's part of what makes it such a quick pace to to move through because you do you want to like find out what the next little moment is and some of them Mm -hmm. are really tiny right like going to the candy lady's house with their grandfather and like they all want candy but their grandfather picks ice cream and so then they all want ice cream right and like Mm -hmm. there are these moments that are nothing but they're also so evocative of a particular time and a particular place and the way she describes like the ice cream melting as they try to make it home in the south carolina evening heat right like yeah. You can visualize all of it and all of the visual imagery is that strong throughout the book.
0: Mm-hmm. I really love the relationship that she has with her grandfather yeah. and how the other kids take him for granted as he gets progressively more ill.
1: Yeah, and she nurses him and it's really beautiful. Those scenes are so beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. I will say my one minor complaint is that I didn't love how the book comes to an end Mm. or rather doesn't Doesn't? come to an end. (laughs) And I recognize that, you know, even as you were saying it, that this isn't a plot-driven book. And in some ways it's unfair of me to expect that it would have something that acts as a capper, because that's not how real life works. Mm. But it also felt like such an ambiguous place to end. I did want a little bit more significance or something. Mm. I just didn't understand why Woodson chose to end it there as opposed to giving us a hundred more pages of these beautiful vignettes. So I was frustrated because I I think I wanted it to build to something Mm -hmm. or have a moment.
1: Well, one of the things we loved so much about House on Mango Street is that ending and the way with that final short story we get a sense of where our protagonist is going next. Like it Mm -hmm. has this real sort of outward focus and we can see her whole life spin out in front of her from that last vignette. And that's really powerful. And we don't have anything like that in this story. It's true.
0: Do you think that it's because this is an autobiography? So Mm -hmm. technically we do know what becomes of Jacqueline Woodson?
1: Yeah, I wonder, you know, I think there's something... She has a novel out uh, called Another Brooklyn that is sort of like a novelization of the Brooklyn experience. And it's not fully autobiography, although it does seem to have autobiographical elements. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's kind of like over the course of her career, she will tease out more of these stories and we just have to be patient.
0: Right. I will say I was incredibly surprised to learn that this book is as recent as it is because Mm it does feel like it was written... I don't want to say back in the day, but it has that aged, lived-in feel to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely. I think part of it is that the nostalgia is just really, really well done. (laughs) Like, we've talked about sort of good and bad uses of nostalgia, and I think here it's incredibly effective in many ways because it's almost like a tonic that eases you into some really difficult conversations about racial politics, sort of cloaked in this very cozy nostalgia.
0: Mm -hmm. What's interesting that you say that, because when I was looking this up, you had mentioned to me offline that this was a very well-known book, so hopefully listeners, you had an opportunity to read it, or you Mm -hmm. had maybe already read it. But I was doing a little bit of research on it, and I came across like an NPR article. I think it was in the wake of her winning a bunch of awards, and her just talking about the response that she had received. And she said that she felt that the book was really important because, and particularly the title, because she, she did get some pushback on the use of brown girl. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently in one of the reviews, somebody said, oh, well, why can't it just be like little girl or, no. <laughs> um, you know, just girl dreaming? Why does it have to be brown? Aren't you automatically excluding, to which I'm just like, did you read the book? You're dumb, <laughs> just stop talking. <laughs> but she did talk about how important it was to have brown girl in the title. Like, it reflects the relationship that she had with her grandmother who called her a little brown girl. The other interesting thing, and this is going to make your blood boil, Brenna. Mm -hmm. She's heard responses from white educators that they didn't want to program the book because they didn't have brown students. So they felt like there was no need or that, like, the students couldn't benefit from it. Uh, Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know... There's that famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote that I'm going to butcher it, but basically that like the most dangerous people for progress for racial justice in society are white moderates because (laughs) they're so scared of upending the status quo that serves them that they won't ever take the leap. They won't ever do the challenging thing. They won't ever Mm -hmm. be brave and bold. I mean, he didn't use that language, but you know what I mean? Yeah, And when I hear a description like that, like, that's what I hear. I hear someone who is so committed to this anodized colorblindness version of liberalism mm-hmm. that they don't recognize, A, that colorblindness is just erasure. And B, that you don't assign a book called Brown Girl Dreaming because you want to pander to the students of color in your class. You assign it because it's an incredibly beautiful meditation on one of the most tumultuous periods of American history. Like, Mm -hmm. that's why you assign it.
0: Yeah. And to me, this... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. This, to me, speaks to... I keep coming up against these concerning labels where it's like, oh well, art for certain types of people can only be consumed by certain types of people. And like I think it's important to acknowledge, like here we sit, two white adults reading this middle grade to YA novel about historical black lives. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we can't get anything from it. Like, obviously, the lived experiences are different. We're going to take different things away from it. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the conversation because mm-hmm. we don't have a Black person in the room. Like, mm-hmm. that's not how this works. And it's important, particularly as white people, that we do this work and mostly for ourselves. Like, we shouldn't be asking people to educate us. But we're lucky that we have people like Jacqueline Woodson, who can put the time and energy into writing this gorgeous book that we can then use to educate ourselves. And we're better off for
1: having consumed it. I'm just floored by the idea that like an all white classroom would benefit exclusively from reading all white stories. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, that seems dangerous to me. <laughs>
0: uh, and yet we do work in academia where uh-huh. oh <laughs> especially in post secondary, so how guilty are we of oh. this, right? rose centrist.
1: I think the point you're making is really important, Joe, which is that when we create a reading list, whether it's in post secondary or it's in grade six, a reading list for any course defines what we think is important to that yeah. discipline. And
0: what do we value? Who is valued? Whose points of views?
1: And if you think that you only have to open up that list to the world because there are kids who look like that in your class, you're very much missing the point. If there mm-hmm. are kids in your class who look like that, then yes, they need to see representation. They need to see what's possible. They need to see themselves in their stories, yes. But the fact that those kids are not your demographic doesn't mean that, it, oh my, I'm just, I'm floored. I know, I am floored. I know. I'll stop. Yeah. God.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Sometimes I do things to make you angry. <laughs> no, it was the kind of comment that, again had this book been released in the late 70s i might have thought okay well look at how far we've come but to think that this book was printed in 2014 (laughs) which means that she got these comments sometime in the last seven years oh boy am i biting my tongue because what in the ever love and
1: Like, what are we doing what i just i feel like i asked that question nine thousand times a day lately like what are we doing what are we doing?
0: What are we doing? What are we doing? How hard is it to make the world a better place by opening up your eyes? Yeah. Okay, well, Brenna, we have had our say. This is a book club, and it's important that we hear from listeners about their experiences with brown girl dreaming.
1: Yay! <laughs>
0: So Brenna, very exciting. We have actually heard from two listeners about Brown Girl Dreaming.
1: Yay, book club! Yay. Yay. See, book club is more fun when it's not just me and Joe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is true. So we'll start with Kaylee, who messaged us to say that she hasn't read many narratives in verse. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't sure what to expect in terms of characterization. But the characters were so clear and vivid and that Jacqueline Woodson's narrative voice is so engaging.
1: It really is. And it is amazing how, you know, the sparseness of the language just by virtue of it being poetry, and yet the characters are so fully fleshed out and so evocative. Like, as we're talking, I'm thinking about her uncle and how, like, we only see her uncle like four times, and Mm -hmm. they're very short vignettes, but I know that guy. Like, I know everything about that guy.
0: She also mentions that her 10-year-old is working through it, which I think is fantastic. (laughs) Yay! But she was amazed that you can write a novel in verse. And I I had actually messaged Kaylee back to say, yeah, I was also surprised that you can do this. (laughs) I think it's just because it feels like it's something that shouldn't work. Like, it should be poetry or it should be narrative. And yet when you see people who do it and they do it so well, the results are undeniable.
1: For sure. And I mean, I think listeners know my softness for novels in verse. I just think it's this beautiful blending of precision language and evocative storytelling. I just, it's my favorite.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that actually segues (laughs) nicely into our second person, Melissa, who wrote that the writing is so beautiful and lyrical, at times a striking contrast to the sadness of what she's describing.
1: Oh, so true. So, Joe, mm-hmm. Melissa is my very supportive department chair. Hi, Melissa. Aww. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I agree. I think that juxtaposition is really powerful. And it's something I always, I always appreciate in literature. It sounds awful to say out loud, but like I did a doctorate in Canadian literature. So like, I've read a lot of traumatic books.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as folks who aren't Canadian, you may not know <laughs> this about us, but we do love our trauma and our weird stuff.
1: Oh my god, we love it so much. And there's something for me about trauma written evocatively. And now I don't think what happens in brown girl dreaming is trauma. But that juxtaposition of the complex, the dark, the nuance, the difficult, and the beautiful is something that mm-hmm. kind of always gets me.
0: Yeah, yeah. It really shone through for me as well in this and House on Mango Street. I think we probably mentioned it before the break when we were just chatting, the two of us, but mm-hmm. there's something to be said about the way verse can capture this, right? Like the yeah. lyricism is so evocative and it really oh gosh, I don't want to say it makes it go down easier, but it feels somehow easier to negotiate the complications of what they're writing about because it is so beautiful.
1: Do you think it's because we read poetry more carefully than we read prose, maybe? So like, everything the author is doing, we're connecting with, as opposed to in a novel where you your eyes might like glaze over a chunk or you might skip a bit or you might sort of read quickly through a passage where it's dealing with something you don't like or you don't want to kind of engage with like Mm. i I almost feel like when you read a novel you have more defense mechanisms as a reader than with poetry poetry sort of requires you to go all in maybe
0: That's interesting because I definitely do take more notice of the word choice because it is a bit more sparse. but I actually mm-hmm. find that I read verse more quickly, but mm. it's because it feels like I'm dancing with oh, the book yeah. like my yeah. eyes are dancing along.
1: Oh, I love that, Joe. That's beautiful.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thank Jacqueline Woodson for bringing this out in me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so good. Um and you know, Joe, I think in Melissa's comment, she noted that she was only like halfway through the book that's okay. You can totally write in when you're only halfway through the book. In fact, we encourage you to write in throughout your process of reading for book club, Mm -hmm. because that's the experience we want to draw out of you. And that's the experience we want to talk about. So even if you're just like, you know, you're two pages in and you have an observation you want to share, Mm -hmm. share it.
0: Please do. Mm -hmm. So thank you to both Kaylee and Melissa for jumping in with their thoughts. And folks, as we move forward with this venture, we hope that you'll do the same.
1: Yeah, Kaylee and Melissa are obviously extremely cool, well-read thoughtful (laughs) people, and you should also be like them and write into the show. So if you are listening in and you're like, ah, I wish I had gotten in on this conversation, it's so good, you should next time. So our next Book Cub book is, Are You There God? It's Me Margaret. And if you want to jump into that conversation, which of course you do, you can find us on the Twitters. Joe has our lovely Twitter account, hkhspod, or the hashtag hkhspod, or the email hkhspod (laughs) at gmail.com. So familiar. (laughs) Many avenues to share your thoughts on our next book club pick, which is again, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret.
0: Yeah. So folks, if you are going to join us, that is for the very last episode that's dropping in March. So you have a little bit of extra time. So please make sure that you join us for a reading of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I'm super excited. I've never read a Judy Bloom.
1: I still can't believe you've never read a Judy Bloom. Your heart is going to grow three sizes. (laughs)
0: well i'm looking forward to it but i'm also looking forward to our next full-length episode brenna because it's time to put a capper on this trilogy baby
1: joe we are finally reading and i mean we because i've totally already read it but i'm gonna read it again we are finally reading always and forever laura jean by jenny han which is the third in the
0: To All the Boys.
1: Series. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we're doing it a little bit after Valentine's Day, but you know what? Romance is always in season.
0: This is true. Yeah. And really, we're only coming to you like a week and a half afterwards. So everybody just settled (laughs) down.
1: Make sure you get a chance to watch it and then come and talk with us. It's like perfect.
0: Yeah, exactly. So folks get started reading are you there god it's me margaret for the end of march and come back next week when we talk about <gasps> to all the boys always and forever
1: you know i do have a question though mm-hmm. the heck are we going to talk about next valentine's day because that's the end of our <laughs> that's the end of our jenny Han cycle
0: um i'm sure eclipse is still going to be available on the table okay
1: now no mm, no mm. <laughs>
0: so much romance love triangles come on Brennan, you love this <laughs>
1: all right i'm gonna go now all right (laughs) until next time i'll see you on the page
0: and i will see you on the screen